Welcome to An Adventure of One's Own, a podcast where we explore autobiographical accounts of female travellers and adventurers in their own words. I'm your host, Kylie Weber. We're travelling with Nellie Bly. Last episode, Nellie Bly decided to change her route slightly in a very short time frame on this very urgent voyage to go and meet in France famous author Jules Verne. He had heard of her amazing race around the world and basically would like to speak to the young woman who is trying to dethrone his fictional character Phileas Fogg from the title of fastest circumnavigation of the globe. On their way to actually visiting Jules Verne, Nellie also encounters the British Railways and starts commenting on the very weird sounding compartments and I am curious, is there any country that actually does private compartments anymore in a railway? I'm assuming tourist rails would, so if you're touring Alaska or you're doing the South Australian bite trip, which escapes me right now, I cannot remember what it's called. I was very amused by her companion's attempt to talk to a waiter in French to order some breakfast when they landed in France. And it's that amusing embarrassment of trying to speak to someone in their own language who plainly does not understand what you're saying. Uh, I had a similar thing in Japan where I had memorized basically what I thought was how to say, excuse me, where is your green tea in a supermarket? Uh, sumimasen, sencha dokudeska. And the woman looked at me for a long moment and then in brilliantly flawless English went, are you looking for the tea? And I was like, yes, please. Can you please show me where it is? Something that did come up when I was narrating the last chapters uh, was that everyone is so white. Like, why is everyone so white? They're paper white. It was like she was going to interview a house full of vampires. Uh, incidentally, if you would like a great person of colour read about vampires, go for Octavia Butler's Fledgling. I think it was the last novel she ever wrote, and it is brilliant. Uh, back to the paper whiteness. This is still in the industrial era, and tans have not yet become desirable. The measure of someone's class is still definitely the paleness of their skin as denoting that they don't have to work menial labor for a living. And also, quite simply, that they were Caucasian. There's, there's no way around that. Uh, the descriptions of the Verns really fills in where photos would be used now. I'm really glad we have photography because it means you don't have to read descriptions of how someone's coat and skirt lay and are plaited. Um, I did like the body positivity where Nellie was very, very approvingly describing Madame Verne as being plump with these plump shoulders. And that, that was rather fun. I did think the kissing Madame Verne goodbye at the end seemed quite unusual through my current modern lens, but I think for the time it was considered normal, and this is mainly because heterosexuality had straightwashed everything queer, so there was no other conceivable explanation than that someone was good friends for kissing someone else on the lips. Uh, but afterwards, I will admit, when I first read this, 
I definitely spent the rest of Bly's trip shipping her with every other woman she met. So to continue Nellie's adventures, chapter 5, on to Brindisi. When Monsieur and Madame Verne were no longer visible, my thoughts turned to my trip. I feared that the enjoyment of my visit to their home had jeopardized the success of my tour. The driver had been told to make the best speed back to the station, but the carriage seemed to be rolling along so quietly that I could not rest until it was urged again upon the coachman to reach the station in the shortest possible time. Some few moments after we reached there, the train came in. Bidding a hearty goodbye to Mr. Sherard, I started again on my tour of the world, and the visit to Jules Verne was a thing of the past. I had gone without sleep and rest. I had travelled many miles out of my way for the privilege of meeting Monsieur and Madame Verne, and I felt that if I had gone around the world for that pleasure, I should not have considered the price too high. The train which carried us to Calais is, I infer from what I have heard, the pride of France. It is called the club train, and is built on the plan of the vestibule trains in America. The carriages are so narrow that after having been accustomed to wide ones, the club train feels like a toy. I have been curious to know why this train is called the club train. I had a foolish idea at first that it was the private property of some club, run for the special benefit of its members and I felt some hesitancy about travelling on a train devoted to the use of men. However, the presence of a number of women put me at ease, and though I made many inquiries about the train, all I could learn was that it was considered quite the finest equipped train in Europe. The car in which we sat, as I said before, contained some women, and was besides liberally filled with men passengers. Shortly after we left Amiens, a porter announced that dinner was served in a front car. Everybody at once filed out and into the dining car. I have thought since that probably the train carried two dining cars, because the dinner, and an excellent one it proved to be, was served table de hôte, and there seemed to be accommodations for all. After we had had our cheese and salad, we returned to our drawing-room car, where we were served with coffee, the men having the privilege of smoking with it. I thought this manner of serving coffee a very pleasing one, quite an improvement on our own system and quite worthy of adoption. When I reached Kalai, I found that I had two hours and more to spend in waiting. The train that I intended to take for Brindisi is a weekly mail train that runs to accommodate the mails and not the passengers. It starts originally from London at 8 o'clock Friday evening of each week. The rule is that the persons desiring to travel on it must buy their tickets 24 hours in advance of the time of its departure. The mail and passengers are carried across the channel and the train leaves Calais at 1.30 in the morning. There are pleasanter places in the world to waste time in than Calais. I walked down the pier and looked at the lighthouse, which I am told is one of the most perfect in the world, throwing its light further away than any other. 
It is a revolving light, and it throws out long rays that seem so little above my, our heads that I found myself dodging to avoid being struck. Of course, that was purely imaginary on my part, for the rays are just the opposite of being near to the ground, but they spread between the ground and the sky like the lathes of an unfinished partition. I wonder if the people of Kalai ever saw the moon and stars. There is a very fine railway station built near the end of the pier. It is of generous size, but seemed, as far as I could judge, at this hour of the night, quite empty. There is a smoothly tiled enclosed promenade on the side of the station facing the pier that I should say would prove quite an attraction and comfort for passengers who are forced to wait in that place. My escort took me into the restaurant where we found something to eat, which was served by a French waiter who could speak some English and understood more. When it was announced that the boat from England was in, we went out and saw the bebundled and bebaggaged passengers come ashore and go to the train which was waiting alongside. One thousand bags of mail were quickly transferred to the train, and then I bade my escort goodbye and was shortly speeding away from Kalai. There is but one passenger coach on this train. It is a Pullman Palace sleeping car with accommodations for 22 passengers, but it is the rule to never carry more than 21, one berth being occupied by the guard. The next morning, having nothing else to occupy my time, I thought that I would see what my travelling companions looked like. I had shared the stateroom at the extreme end of the car with a pretty English girl who had the rosiest cheeks and the greatest wealth of golden-brown hair I ever saw. She was going with her father, an invalid, to Egypt to spend the winter and spring months. She was an early riser, and before I was awake, had gotten up and joined her father in the other part of the car. When I went out so as to give the porter an opportunity to make up my stateroom, I was surprised at the strange appearance of the interior of the car. All of the head and footboards were left in place, giving the impression that the coach was divided into a series of small boxes. Some of the passengers were drinking, some were playing cards, and all were smoking until the air was stifling. I never object to cigar smoke when there is some little ventilation, but when it gets so thick that one feels as if it is molasses instead of air that one is inhaling, then I mildly protest. It was soon this occasion, and I wonder what would be the result in our land of boasted freedom if a Pullman car should be put to such purposes. I concluded it is due to this freedom that we do not suffer from such things. Women travellers in America command as much consideration as men. I walked down the car looking in the boxes, only to find them all occupied by unsocial-looking men. When I reached the middle of the car, my little English roommate, who was sitting with her father, saw me and kindly asked me to sit down with them. Her father I remember as a cultured, broad-minded man, with a sense of humour that helped me to hear with less dread the racking cough that frequently stopped all speech and shook his thin frame as though he had the ague. Father, the little English girl said in a clear, musical voice, the clergyman sent you his large prayer book just before our departure, and I put it in your bag. My daughter is thoughtful, he said to me. Then turning to her, he added with a smile in his eye, Please take the first opportunity to return the prayer book to the clergyman. 
and tell him with my compliments that he might have saved himself that trouble, that I was grieved to deprive him of his book for so long. The young girl's face settled into a look that spoke disapproval of her father's words, and a determination not to return the prayer book. She held, clasped to her breast, a large prayer book, and when her father jokingly told her she had bought the largest one she could find, which he looked on as wasting valuable packing space when she could have carried a small one that would have been as much surface, I was actually startled by the hard, determined light on her face. In everything else she was the sweetest, most gentle girl I ever met, but her religion was of the hard, uncompromising kind, that condemns everything, forgives nothing, and swears the heathen is forever damned because he was not born to know the religion of her belief. She spent all the afternoon trying to implant the seeds of her faith in my mind, and I listened, thinking from her words that if she was not the original Catherine Ellesmere, she at least could not be more like that interesting character. For the first day, food was taken on the train at different stations, and the conductor, or guard as they called him, served it to the passengers. A dining car was attached in the evening, but I was informed by the women that it was not exactly the thing for us to eat in a public car with men, so we continued to be served in our staterooms. I might have seen more while travelling through France if the car windows had been clean. From their appearance I judged that they had never been washed. We did not make many stops. The only purpose for stopping was coal or water, as passengers are not taken on or off this train between Calais and Brindisi. In the course of the afternoon we passed some high and picturesque mountains that were covered with a white frost. I found that even wearing my ulster and wrapped in a rug I was none too warm. About eight o'clock in the morning we reached Medina. The baggage was examined there, and all the passengers were notified in advance to be prepared to get out and unlock the boxes that belonged to them. The conductor asked me several times if I was quite certain I had no more than the handbag with me, telling me at the time if any boxes were found locked, with no owner to open them, they would be detained by the custom inspectors. When partly assured I had no trunks, he said it was not necessary to get out with my handbag, as no one would think it necessary to examine it. Half an hour later, we were in Italy. I was anxiously waiting to see that balmy sunny land, but though I pressed my face close to the frosty window pane, bleak night denied me even one glimpse of sunny Italy and its dusky people. I went to bed early. It was so very cold that I could not keep warm out of bed, and I cannot say I got much warmer in bed. The berths were provided with only one blanket each. I piled all my clothing on the berth and spent half the night lying awake, thinking how fortunate the passengers were the week previous on this train. Just in the very same place that we were travelling through, Italian bandits had attacked the train, and I thought, with regretful envy, if the passengers then felt the scarcity of blankets, they at least had some excitement to make their blood circulate. When I got awake in the morning, I hastily threw up the window shade and eagerly looked out. I fell back in surprise, wondering if for once in my life I had made a mistake and waked up early. I could not see any more than I had the night before, on account of a heavy grey fog that completely hid everything more than a yard away. 
Looking at the watch on my wrist, I found that it was ten o'clock, so I dressed with some haste, determined to find the guard and demand an explanation of him. It's a most extraordinary thing, he said to me. I never saw such a fog in Italy before. There was nothing for it except to sit quietly, counting the days I had been away from New York, subtracting them from the number that must elapse before my return. When this grew monotonous, I carefully thought over the advisability of trying to introduce brown uniforms for railroad employees in the United States. I thought with wearied frenzy of the universal employment of navy blue uniforms in America, and I turned with rest to the neat brown uniforms brightened with a touching of gold braid on the collars and cuffs that adorned the conductor and porter of the India Mail. But even this subject would not fill the day, so I began to notice the difference between the whistles employed on these engines and those at home. There was no deafening, ear-racking blast from these, but plaintive sounds pitched in a high key that was very soprano indeed compared with our bass whistles. I noticed in Italy, as in all the other countries where I found railroads, that trains are started by a blast from a tin horn such as those that take conspicuous places in political campaigns once every four years, succeeding, by the aid of enthusiastic campaigners, in making the night hideous for several months preceding the election. In most cases, these hornblowers seem to be located at the station but in France and Italy they occupied the front platform of a coach, and I noticed with amusement that the tin horns were chained to them. All day I travelled through Italy, sunny Italy, along the Adriatic Sea. The fog still hung in a heavy cloud over the earth, and only once did I get a glimpse of the land that I had heard so much about. It was evening, just at the hour of sunset when we stopped at some station. I went out on the platform, and the fog seemed to lift for an instant, and I saw on one side a beautiful beach and a smooth bay dotted with boats bearing oddly shaped and brightly coloured sails, which somehow looked to me like mammoth butterflies, dipping, dipping about in search of honey. Most of the sails were red, and as the sun kissed them with renewed warmth just before leaving us in darkness, the sails looked as if they were composed of brilliant fire. A high, rugged mountain was on the other side of the train. A high, rugged mountain was on the other side of the train. It made me feel dizzy to look at the white buildings perched on the perpendicular side. I noticed the road that went in a winding line up the hill had been built with a wall on the ocean side. Still, I thought I would not care to travel up it. I got out for a few minutes at the next station where we stopped to take our dinners. I walked into a restaurant to look about. It was very neat and attractive. Just as I stepped inside, a little girl with wonderful large black eyes and enormous gold hoop rings in her ears ran forward to me with the fearless boldness of a child. I touched her pretty black hair and then naturally felt in my pocket for something to give her. Just as I drew forth a large copper coin, the less the value of a coin generally, the larger its size, a small man with a delicately refined face flashing black eyes, wide expanse of white shirt front, broken by a brilliant diamond, came up and spoke to the baby. In the way she drew back from me, although her little hand had been stretched out expectantly before, I knew he had told her not to accept anything from me. I felt on first impulse like boxing his ears. He was so tiny and impudent. The guard, coming in search of me, found us at this critical moment. 
"'You have insulted him,' he said to me, as if I was not conscious of it. "'The Italians are the poorest and proudest people on earth. They hate the English.' "'I am an American,' I said, bluntly and abruptly. At this, a waiter who had been standing close by, apparently not listening, but catching every word just the same, came up and spoke to me in English. Then I determined to remedy the fault I had committed, but nevertheless I had a dogged determination that the child should yet take the coin. "'What a beautiful restaurant!' I exclaimed. "'I am passing hurriedly through Italy,' and in my desire to see, judging from the samples of good cooking I have had en route, Italian eating-houses are excellent. I hope I have not put you to any inconvenience. I almost forgot the restaurant when I saw that lovely baby. What exquisitely beautiful eyes! Exactly the same as her father's. At least I judge from the similarity of their eyes that he is her father, though he looks so young. The waiter smiled and bowed and translated. I knew he would, and that is why I said it all. Then the little man's pride melted away, and a smile replaced the frown on his face. He spoke to the baby, who came up and shook hands with me. I gave her the coin, and our peace was sealed. Then the little father brought forth a bottle of wine, and with the most cordial smiles and friendliest words begged me to accept it. I did not intend to be outdone, so I told the waiter that I must take some wine with me, insisted on paying for it, and with low bows and sweet smiles we took leave of one another, and I rushed after the guard to the train, boarding it just as the horn blew for it to continue on its way. We arrived at Brindisi two hours late. When the train stopped, our car was surrounded with men wanting to carry us as well as our baggage to the boats. Their making no mention of hotels led me to wonder if people always pass through Brindisi without stopping. All these men spoke English very well, but the guard said he would get one omnibus and escort the English women, the invalid man and his daughter, and myself to our boats, and would see that we were not charged more than the right fare. We drove first to the boat bound for Alexandria, where we took leave of my roommate and her father. Then we drove to the boat that we expected to sail on. I alighted from the omnibus and followed my companions up the gangplank. I dreaded meeting English people with their much-talked-of prejudices, as I knew I would shortly have to do. I was earnestly hoping that everybody would be in bed. As it was after one in the morning, I hardly expected the trial of facing them at once. The crowds of men on the deck dispelled my fond hope. I think every man on board that boat was up waiting to see the new passengers. They must have felt but illy paid for their loss of sleep, for besides the men who came on board, there were only the two large Englishwomen and my own plain, uninteresting self. These women were more helpless than I. As they were among their own people, I waited for them to take the lead. But after we had stood at the foot of the stairs for some time, gazed at by the passengers, and no one had come forward to attend to our wants, which were few and simple, I gently asked, if that was the usual manner of receiving passengers on English boats. It is strange, very strange. A steward or someone should come to our assistance, was all they could say. At last a man came down below, and as he looked as if he was some way connected with the boat, I ventured to stop him and inquire if it was expecting too much to ask if we might have a steward show us to our cabins. 
he said that there should be someone about and began lustily to call for one even this brought no one to us and as he started to find one himself i started in the opposite direction among the crowd that stood about was but one man that dared to speak without waiting for an introduction before he could be commonly polite you will find the purser in his office the first door to the left there he said and i went that way followed by the guard from the train sitting in the office was the purser and the man i supposed to be the doctor i gave my ticket and the letter i had been given at the p and o office in london to the purser this letter requested that the commanders and purses of all the p and o boats on which i travelled should give me all the care and attention it was in their power such as officers to bestow after leisurely reading the letter the purser very carelessly turned around and told me the number of my cabin i asked for a steward to show me the way but he replied there did not seem to be any about that the cabin was on the port side and with this meagre information he impolitely turned his back and busied himself with some papers on the desk before him the train guard who still stood by my side said he would help me find the cabin after a little search we did find it i opened the door and stepped in and the sight that met my eyes both amused me and dismayed me at the opening of the door two bushy heads were stuck out of the two lower berths and two high-pitched voices exclaimed simultaneously with vexed intonation oh i looked at the bandboxes boots handbags gowns and the upper berth that was also filled with clothes and i echoed the oh in a different tone and retired i returned to the purser and told him i could not sleep in an upper berth and would not occupy a cabin with two other women after looking again over the letter i had brought him as if to see how much weight he should give it he referred me to another cabin this time a steward made his appearance and he took the part of an escort i found a pretty girl in that cabin who lifted her head anxiously then gave me a friendly smile when i entered i put my bag down and returned to the guard who was waiting to take me to the cable office i stopped to ask the purser if i had time to make the trip to which he replied in the affirmative with the proviso if you hurry the two women who had travelled with me from Kalai had by this time found their way to the purser's office and i heard them telling that they had come away from home and left their purse and tickets lying on the table in the sitting-room they had started in such a rush the guard took me down the gangplank and along several dark streets at last coming to a building where a door stood open he stopped and i followed him in the room in which we stood was perfectly bare and lighted by a lamp whose chimney was badly smoked the only things in the room were two stationary desks on the one lay a piece of blank paper before an ancient inkwell and a much-used pen i thought that everybody had retired for the night and the cable would have to wait until i reached the next port until the guard explained to me that it was customary to ring for the operator who would get up and attend to the message for me suiting the action to the words the guard pulled at a knob near a small closed window much like a postage stamp window the bell made quite a clatter still i had begun to think that hopeless when the window opened with a clink and a head appeared at the opening the guard spoke in italian but hearing me speak english the operator replied in the same language i told him i wanted to send a cable to new york 
He asked me where New York was. I explained as best I could. Then he brought out a lot of books through which he searched first to know by which line he could send the message, at least so he explained, then what it would cost. The whole thing was so new and amusing to me that I forgot all about the departure of the boat until we had finished the business and stepped outside. A whistle blew, long and warningly. I looked at the guard, the guard looked at me. It was too dark to see each other, but I know our faces were the picture of dismay. My heart stopped beating, and I thought with emotions akin to horror, my boat was gone, and with it my limited wardrobe. Can you run? the guard asked in a husky voice. I said I could, and he, taking a close grasp of my hand, we started down the dark street with a speed that would have startled a deer. Down the dark streets, past astonished watchmen and late pedestrians, until a sudden bend brought us in full view of my ship, still in port. The boat for Alexandria had gone, but I was saved. Chapter 6 An American Heiress I had not been asleep long, it seemed to me, until I waked to find myself standing upright beside my berth. It required but a second, a glance at my drenched self, and the sounds of vigorous scrubbing on the deck above to explain the cause of my being out of bed before I knew it. I had gone to sleep with the porthole open, and as my berth was just beneath it, I received the full force of the scrub water as it came pouring over the sides. I managed to get the heavy window down and went back to bed, wet but confident I would not be again caught napping under such circumstances. I had not been asleep many moments until I heard a voice call, Miss, will you have your tea now? I opened my eyes and saw a steward standing at the door awaiting a reply. I refused the tea, as did the English girl on the other side of my cabin, managing to answer her bright smile with a very tired one, and then I was off to sleep again. Miss, will you have your bath now? A voice broke in on my slumbers shortly afterwards. I looked up in disgust at a little white-capped woman who was bending over me, tempted to say that I had just had my bath, a shower bath, but thought better of it before speaking. I know I said something about, in a few minutes, and then I was asleep again. Well, you are a lazy girl. You'll miss your bath and breakfast if you don't get up the instant, was my third greeting. My surprise at the familiarity of the remark got the better of my sleepiness, and I thought, Well, by all that is wonderful, where am I? Am I in school again that a woman dare assume such a tone to me? I kept my thoughts to myself and said stiffly, I generally get up when I feel so inclined. I saw my roommate was missing, but I felt like sleeping and I decided to sleep. Whether it pleased the stewardess or not, it mattered little to me. The steward was the next one to put in an appearance. Miss, this ship is inspected every day, and I must have this cabin made up before they come, he said complainingly. The captain will be here presently. There was nothing to do but get up, which I did. I found my way to the bathroom, but soon saw that it was impossible for me to turn on the water as I did not understand the mechanism of the faucet. 
I asked a steward I saw outside the door the whereabouts of the stewardess, and was simply amazed to hear him reply, The stewardess is taking a rest and cannot be disturbed. After dressing, I wandered up on the next deck, and was told that breakfast was over long ago. I went out on deck, and the very first glimpse of the lazy-looking passengers in their summer garments, lounging about in comfortable positions or slowly promenading the deck, which was sheltered from the heat of the sun by a long stretch of awnings, and the smooth, velvety-looking water, the bluest I had ever seen, softly gurgling against the side of the ship as it almost imperceptibly steamed on its course, and the balmy air, soft as a rose-leaf, and just as sweet, air such as one dreams about but seldom finds. Standing there, alone among strange people and on strange waters, I thought how sweet life is. Before an hour had passed, I was acquainted with several persons. I had thought and expected that the English passengers would hold themselves aloof from a girl who was travelling alone, but my cabin companion saw me before I got away from the door, and came forward to ask me to join herself and friends. We first had an amusing search for the steamer chair which I had told the guard to buy at Brindisi and send on before our departure. There were over three hundred passengers on the ship, and I suppose they averaged a chair apiece, so it can easily be pictured the trouble it would take to find a chair among that number. I asked where the deck stewards were when at last I felt the search was useless, and was surprised to learn that a deck steward was an unknown commodity on the P&O line. I presume the quartermaster has charge of decks, my companion said in conclusion, but we are expected to look after our own chairs and rugs, and if we don't, it is useless to inquire for them if they disappear. Shortly before noon, I became acquainted with an Englishman who belongs to the civil service in Calcutta. He had been in India for the last twenty years, during which time he had repeatedly visited England, which made this trip an old story to him. He had made the same trip from Kalai on the India Express as I had, and said he noticed me on the train. Learning that I was travelling alone, he devoted most of his time looking out for my comfort and pleasure. The bugle blew for luncheon, which is always called by the Indian title Tiffin on ships travelling in eastern seas. The Englishman asked if I would go with him to Tiffin, and as I had gone without breakfast, I was only too anxious to go at the first opportunity. The dining hall is on the second deck. It is a small room, nicely decorated with tropical foliage plants, and looks quite cosy and pretty, but it was never intended to accommodate a ship carrying more than seven five first-class passengers. The head-waiter, who stood at the door, stared at us blankly as we went in. I hesitated, naturally thinking that he would show us to some table, but as he did not, I suggested to the gentleman with me that he ask before we take our plates. "'Sit anywhere,' was the polite reply we received, so we sat down at the table nearest. We had just been served when four women, ranging from twenty-four to thirty-five, came in, and with indignant snorts of surprise, seated themselves at the same table. They were followed by a short, fat woman with a sweeping walk and an air of satisfied assurance, who eyed us in a supercilious way, and then turned to the others with an air of injured dignity that was intensely amusing. They were followed by two men, and as there were only places for seven at the table, the elderly man went out. Two of the girls sat on a lounge at the end of the table, which made room for the young man. 
Then we were made to suffer. All kinds of rude remarks were made about us. They did hate people coming to their table. Too bad Papa was robbed of his place. Shame people had to be crowded from their own table. And similar pleasant speeches were hurled at us. The young woman who sat at my left was not content to confine her rudeness to her tongue, but repeatedly reached across my plate, brushing my food with her sleeves without one word of apology. I confess I never had a more disagreeable meal. I thought at first that this rudeness was due to my being an American, and that they had taken this means of showing their hatred for all Americans. Still, I could not understand why they should subject an Englishman to the same treatment, unless it was because he was with me. After experience showed me that my first conclusion was wrong, that I was not insulted because I was an American, but because the people were simply ill-bred. When dinner came, we found that we were debarred from the dining room. Passengers who got on at London were given the preference, and, as there was not accommodations for all, the passengers who boarded the ship at Brindisi had to wait for second dinner. One never realises, until they face such contingencies, what an important part dinner plays in one's life. It was nine o'clock when the dining room was cleared that night, and the Brindisi passengers were allowed to take their places at the table. I can hardly believe they took much else. Everything was brought to us as if it was left from the first dinner, cold soup, the remnants of fish, cut-up bits of beef and fowl, all down the miserable course until at last came cold coffee. I had thought the food on the India Express might have been better, until after my experience on the P&O steamer Victoria, and then I decided it might have been worse. Such a roar of complaint as went up from those late dinner passengers. They wanted to get up a protest to serve on the captain, but I refused to take any part in it, and several of the more conservative ones followed my example. The two women I have already referred to as having travelled on the India Express to Brindisi were treated even worse than I was. When we made inquiries, we were told that at dinner only were the places reserved, but at breakfast and tiffin first there were first served. Acting on this information, they went in to early tiffin the following day, and a young man who sat at the head of an empty table said to them as they went to sit down, "'You can't sit there. I've reserved those faces for some of my friends.' They went to another table, and after sitting down, were requested by some latecomers to get up and give the places to others. The one woman cried bitterly over it. "'I am a grandmother, and this is the sixth trip I have made to Australia, and I was never treated so insultingly in my life!' There are circumstances under which a trip on the Mediterranean would be like a dream of paradise, if one were in love, for instance, for they do say that people in love do not eat, and aside from the food, the trip is perfect. Probably it is a hope of finding the cure that will help them to forget a stomach void that makes love the principal subject on the P&O boats. Travellers who care to be treated with courtesy and furnished with palatable food will never by any chance travel on the Victoria. She is all rule and no practice on that ship. The impudence and rudeness of the servants in America is a standing joke. But if the servants on the Victoria are a sample of English servants, I am thankful to keep those we have such as they are.
I asked the stewardess to assist a woman who looked as if she were dying of consumption to the deck with her rugs, only to be told in reply that she would not help anyone unless they came and requested her to do so. I heard her tell a passenger one day that she did not believe it was sickness but laziness that ailed the woman. If complaints were to be made about the conduct of the servants, they were always met by the assertion that the servants had been for a long time in the company's employ and would take privileges. The commander of the ship set an example for rudeness. A Spanish gentleman of high position who was travelling to China, where he represented his country in the diplomatic service, also got on at Brindisi. He thought that his first duty was to pay his respects to the captain in charge of the ship, so he asked someone to point the captain out to him. This was done on deck. He walked up to the captain, and with a profound bow, hat in hand, begged the captain's pardon, and said that he was charged affairs of China and Siam for the Spanish government, and that he wished to pay his duty and respects to the captain of the boat on which he was travelling. The captain glared at him savagely for a moment after he had finished, and then asked rudely, "'Well, what of it?' The Spaniard was speechless for a moment, but recovering, he said politely, "'I beg your pardon. I thought I was addressing a gentleman and the commander of this ship.' Turning, he walked away, and they never spoke afterwards. Although I had brought a letter to the captain, he never noticed me in any way. A bright-faced, jolly boy, who was going to Hong Kong to enter a banking-house of his uncle's, brought the letter to the captain. He presented himself one day on deck, stepping a foot or so away until the captain should have time to read it and greet him. The captain read the letter, folded it carefully, put it in his pocket, and walked away. He never spoke to the boy afterwards, and the boy was careful not to give him that trouble. The captain had a tongue for gossip, too. Every time I heard a slighting story about any of the passengers, and would ask where it came from, the answer would always be, the captain had told it to somebody. Notwithstanding all annoying trifles, it was a very happy life we spent in those pleasant waters. The decks were filled all the day, and when the lights were put out at night, the passengers reluctantly went to their cabins. The passengers formed two striking contrasts. There were some of the most refined and lovely people on board, and there some of the most ill-bred and uncouth. Most of the women, whose acquaintance I formed, were very desirous of knowing all about American women, and frequently expressed their admiration for the free American woman many going so far as to envy me while admiring my unfettered happiness. Two clever Scotchwomen I met were travelling around the world, but are taking two years at it. One Irishwoman, with a laugh that rivalled her face in sweetness, was travelling alone to Australia. My cabin-mate was bound for New Zealand, but she was accompanied by her brother, a pleasant young Englishman, who insisted on relinquishing his place at first dinner in my favour, and who stayed away despite my protests and my determination not to deprive him of a warm dinner. In the daytime the men played cricket and quoits. Sometimes in the evenings we had singing, and other times we went to the second-class deck and listened to better music given by second-class passengers. When there were no chairs we would all sit down on the deck, and I remembered nothing that was more enjoyable than these little visits. There was one little girl with a pale, slender face who was a great favourite with us all, 
though none of us ever spoke to her. She sang in a sweet, pathetic voice a little melody about who'll buy my silver herrings, until I know if she had tried to sell any, we should all have bought. The best we could do was join her in the refrain, which we did most heartily. Better than all to me was to sit in a dark corner on the deck, above where the sailors had their food, and listen to the sounds of a tom-tom and a weird musical chanting that always accompanied their evening meal. The sailors were lascars. They were not interesting to look at, and doubtless, if I could have seen as well as heard them at their evening meal, it would have lost its charm for me. They were the most untidy-looking lot of sailors I ever saw. Over a pair of white muslin drawers there were a long muslin slip, very like in shape to the old-time nightshirt. This was tied about the waist with a coloured handkerchief, and on their heads they wore gaily-coloured turbans, which are really nothing but a crown of straw, with a scarf-shaped piece of bright cloth, often six feet in length, wound about the head. Their brown feet are always bare. They chant, as all sailors do, when hoisting sails, but are otherwise a grim, surly-looking set, climbing about over the ship like a pack of monkeys. When I boarded the boat at Brindisi, the purser gave me some cables that had been sent to me, care of the Victoria. After we had been out several days, a young woman came to me with an unsealed cable and asked if I was Nellie Bly. Upon telling her I was, she said that the purser had given the cable to some of the passengers the day before, as he did not know who Nellie Bly was, and after two days travelling among them it reached me. Occasionally we would have a dance on deck to the worst music that it has ever been my misfortune to hear. The members of the band also washed the dishes, and though I could not blame the passengers who always disappeared at the appearance of the musicians, still I felt sorry for them. It was both ridiculous and pathetic that they should be required to cultivate two such inharmonious arts. One of the officers told me that the band they had before were compelled to scrub the decks, and their hands became so rough from the work that it was impossible for them to longer fill the role of musicians, so they were discharged and the new band were turned into dishwashers instead of deck scrubbers. I had not been on the Victoria many days, until someone who had become friendly with me told me it was rumoured on board that I was an eccentric American heiress, travelling about with a hairbrush and a bank book. I judged that some of the attention I was receiving was due to the story of my wealth. I found it convenient later on to correct the report, when a young man came to me to say that I was the kind of girl he liked, and as he was the second son, and his brother would get both the money and the title, his sole ambition was to find a wife who would settle a thousand pounds a year on him. There was another young man on board, who was quite unique as a character and much more interesting to me. He told me that he had been travelling constantly since he was nine years old, and that he had always killed the desire to love and marry, because he never expected to find a woman who could travel without a number of trunks and bundles innumerable. I noticed that he dressed very exquisitely, and changed his apparel at least three times a day, so my curiosity made me bold enough to ask how many trunks he carried with him. Nineteen was the amazing reply. I no longer wondered at his fears of getting a wife who could not travel without trunks.
An Adventure of One's Own is written, produced, narrated and edited by Kylie Weber with original music by Alex Kizenkov. The autobiographical works that I narrate are the product of their original authors. More information about Nellie Bly can be found in the show notes and Around the World in 72 Days is freely available online. For more information about An Adventure of One's Own, please go to the website womenonadventure.net. See you next episode!